to The Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jen Subchakchai Bankard, and I'm here with a rising star. No, actually, it's just P.T. Vignip. How's it going, P.T.? I mean, pretty good. I, I just got word I'm the new frontrunner for visual effects. How, how strange. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, really excited because we have two kind of big, big topics for the day. Uh, but I also have with me, he's Oompa Loompa Doompity D. It's Greg Cass, don't you see? How's it going, Greg? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm actually Andy Circus performing Greg Cass tonight. <laughs> but other than that, I'm good, Jen. How are you? Uh, after you went through saying that that bit was bad, then you referenced it. That's great. I love it. So, so if you're wondering, those were all references to the 77th EE BAFTAs, uh, which aired in London yesterday, Sunday, February 18th. They're essentially the British equivalent of the Oscars and a pretty hefty precursor if we're, you know, if we're trying to predict the Oscars. So we are here today to give our reactions and sort of tea leaf readings uh, in response to that. And after that, we will review Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, which is one of the 10 Best Picture nominees at the Oscars, as well as one of the films nominated for Best International Feature. And I, I will say, no, you know, to, to give a little bit of a spoiler, did really well at the BAFTAs as well. So it's all it's all coming together. <laughs> um, if if you are listening to us for the first time, when we are talking about Zone of Interest, we will have a spoiler free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And with a very clear alert, we will shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show pt if listeners think we're we're in their zone of interest after listening to this episode what can they do well they can uh subscribe for uh to a feed of our podcast wherever they listen uh that may be their apple podcast their spotify uh their overcast wherever wherever you're listening right now why don't you just subscribe to us uh you can also follow along uh on jen's substack thelongtake.substack.com. That's where this show is. Uh, that's the home base for the show. Uh, and you can also follow us on social media, Instagram and threads at The Long Take Review. Thanks, PT. So as I mentioned, we are going to eventually get to our review of The Zone of Interest. But first, we have a fairly juicy movie news update. Just in off the wire, it's your Hollywood news. All right. So as I said, BAFTAs were just this weekend. Some pretty big surprises, I want to say. Uh, but uh, before we get into those, who do we feel like were the biggest winners? Maybe that maybe those answers coincide. But like, who do we feel like are, came away from this as the biggest w- winners, especially in terms of gaining momentum for the Oscars? Gaining momentum is hard. I feel like a lot of the people who had momentum already maintained their momentum, right? Um, and that would primarily be Oppenheimer followed by poor things. I don't think the power rankings in my mind really shifted there. Um, but if we we're looking at who maybe got a little boost, a little extra juice, I thought uh, Zone of Interest grabbed a lot more attention than Anatomy of the Fall, which for my prediction sheet is what really messed me up. That I had predicted Anatomy of the Fall was really going to cruise to a lot of those categories. And is it the slight uh, British bias or is it, you know, just uh, the preference of the voters? But I think Zone of Interest pulled ahead in some of those races or pulled closer in some of those races. Yeah, it's funny because I thought I saw a, a, a headline or two that was like, 
American Fiction and Anatomy Fall are the night's big winners. And I was like, wait, 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 like Zone of Interest kind of ate Anatomy of Fall's lunch in a couple of categories. Like, so, <laughs> so I thought that I thought that was really interesting that that people were still sort of pretty confident in Anatomy of Fall just because I feel like the only thing it actually won was screenplay, right? Original screenplay. Yes. It didn't win anything else. Yeah. So mm-hmm. interesting that that was alone enough was uh, that alone was enough to sort of make people think that it was it was still chugging along. Well, I think I think the assumption is that it has locked up original screenplay. Like with this oh, win, it's sort of okay. It has that secured, and I think folks may have sort of shifted their expectations to that's probably the only win it's going to get. But at least it's got that. You know, it, it's the heavy front runner now. Uh, I agree with Greg that the zone of interest really sort of you know made a strong showing, which we can probably unpack as the episode unfolds. Uh, I will I will note sort of the the uh, there was a boost here for Killian Murphy, which is maybe one of those oh this is a little obvious that the BAFTAs would lean towards him uh, over Paul Giamatti. So I don't know if it's you know really a, a, a sea change, but at least in you know, it, it's good to be the last one to win. The, you know, so there's some, uh, there, there's a, a little bit of uh, support there. Robert Downey Jr. and Dave I. Joy Randolph seem to have uh, secured their uh, their wins, uh, or at least further reinforced their uh, dominant frontrunner status. And I, I think the biggest boost coming out of it, especially right after the Annie Awards that had uh, d- given a bunch to Across the Spider-Verse, was The Boy and the Heron taking Best Animated Feature, which really makes that feel like it's pretty close to a coin flip at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's much more of a race going on in a lot of these categories. A lot of people also speculating, you know, Lily Gladstone was not nominated for a BAFTA. And you can sort of explain that as... Well, in general, BAFTAs didn't really go for Killers of Flower Moon because it's too American a movie. Although, see American fiction and adapted screenplay. So I don't know what, what happens to that theory. Um, maybe they're just uncomfortable with like indigenous genocide. I don't know. Like, um, but are okay with European genocide uh, movies. So, um, you know, uh, the second I started talking, I'm like, this is, I'm going to trip over this in some way. Um, so apologies if I did, that didn't come out right. Um, well, British but, did very yeah. little to stop the Native American genocide, whereas they're like, well, this was a genocide. We helped end the, uh, in, in Europe in the 40s. So good job by us. They can celebrate that. Right. But my point was that was a very long-winded way of saying it's it's pretty much a neck-and-neck race at this point between Emma Stone and Lily Gladstone. Because Emma Stone won a BAFTA, she's like really on track staying in the race. And, you know, depending on how SAG goes, I think I've heard lots of people say, Emma Stone gets SAG, it's over, done. But if Lily Gladstone gets SAG, then she's still in it. And and it's still kind of like a, like PT was saying, like a coin toss between the two. And we're less than a week out from SAG now, right? Like it's shocking how much we're in the end game now. And, um, you know, Jen has helpfully reminded us SAG next weekend and that final voting starts before that, right? It starts Thursday, I think. So these wins matter a lot. Um, You know, I'm just going to say I'm really sad to see Lily Gladstone struggling here because I think she's incredible in that movie. I think um, actually I think PT texted this to us. Uh, Sorry, friendship uh, shouldn't come before content. But um, that like the fact we could be seeing another Scorsese film with double digit nominees that are nominations that walks home empty handed. 
I think would be a tragedy. And I think Lily's the one mm-hmm. who deserves it. So um, with all due respect to Emma Stone in a film, I'm on the record for not having really appreciated. Um, you know, I, I do respect the performance. She did something pretty incredible. The physicality is there. I think Emma Stone is the real reason we're not talking about Margot Robbie anymore um, in that category. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I just I'd rather see it, it spread to somebody like Lily Gladstone, who uh, hasn't had a shot before. Yeah, I think this would be a much different conversation if Emma Stone didn't already have an Oscar. I think that, you know, very few people would be like, oh, OK, like, yeah, she's this. Mm-hmm. this What a performance. She's doing great. But we've talked about this before, very similar to last year, a, a returning champion uh, coming in with a uh, someone, a, a newcomer or at least newcomer to the uh, to being nominated for awards. Uh, in an from an underrepresented community, sort of are going head to head. Last year, it went to the latter. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see how. Uh, as of this recording, uh, it's Monday, the nineteenth. The final Oscar voting starts on uh, Thursday, the twenty second, as Greg said, uh, and then we have SAG is Saturday, the twenty fourth. The uh, Producers Guild uh, of America Awards is the next day, the twenty fifth. And then voting ends on uh, Tuesday, the 27th. So this next week is like the push. This is where it's all sort of coming to a head. So, yeah. We're, and this is a critical time where things, the winds can shift very quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody's winning that we didn't even think about or weren't talking about before. So, um, and, but I, you know, I'm, I keep remembering this time last year at the BAFTAs. And this is where the all quiet on the Western front thing started. People were like, <laughs> it won so many BAFTAs. What do we do now? And then it actually won so many Oscars. Right. So, so to me, I'm kind of like, is that, is there an equivalent here this year? Is it zone of interest? Is zone of interest going to sort of bubble up to the surface and in, in a couple, is that going to be the spoiler in some weird category we're not seeing right now? Or I feel like it's also in the craft categories in particular, Oppenheimer sort of won the things that I was, I thought it would win, but then, Poor things won the bat the 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 head to head battle with Barbie in a lot of the other craft categories like production design, um, which which people perceive to be pretty competitive at the Oscars, right? So like production design, um, makeup and hairstyling, which is not nominated. Barbie's not nominated at the Oscars for that, but I think people thought it had a chance here, mm-hmm. um, and just like Barbie went away empty handed um, at the Baftas, which like. That I don't know how much you can explain that as, as British people being British, like you know what I mean. Because based on based on the ceremony, they were like, "Yeah, we're cool. We like Barbie." Like that was mm. in terms of the planting of the cast and like the jokes and bits in between and stuff like that. Like Barbie definitely seemed to be very present at the Baftas and yet went home with nothing. And so I think things are not looking for Killers of the Flower Moon. Things are not looking good for Barbie. <laughs> Things are definitely not looking good for Maestro because it couldn't even <laughs> win makeup. This is where this all starts to feel a little icky. And for me, it stands out in the BAFTAs for the stupid reason where I'm like, you made all these people fly halfway around the world to sit in your auditorium <laughs> and smile and nod at your your lame jokes. And look, they're billionaires. <laughs> they're fine. But it's like I it's very cool to have Barbie cast members sitting in your crowd and it's you know it's there was a great moment where 
David Tennant fulfilled my Doctor Who dreams of talking to Carrie Mulligan and said, can you introduce me to your posh friend? And Bradley Cooper uh, Bradley was Cooper. the posh friend. Um, and it was all charming and it was really exciting to see, but it, it just starts to feel exploitative in a way where it's like, these people have no chance at these awards, but we're going to invite them to to get whatever gains we could. Um, and I have to be on brand, and I don't think there's a sound cue for me uh, on this one, but we'll see. But uh, now I'm nervous. Uh, but I would say the most uh, the the moment of the night where they were like the British people being British, I think is how uh, folk how much focus there was on Saltburn, which everything else oh, has yeah, forgotten. Yeah. But they oh, I don't real... have a sound drop for that. Ah, They're the only ones who got a musical performance. Rosamund Pike mm-hmm. got a nice little moment back and forth. And then um, there were multiple jokes built around Saltburn. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, I'm not here to say Saltburn should be involved in the Oscars, but it just felt like almost like we were seeing across meme cultures. It's like, oh, they're still talking mm-hmm. about Saltburn over there, whereas we're still talking about Barbie or something. I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that yeah, I think that's that is interesting that it's it, it's still lingering. Or is that just that they wrote all the jokes like three weeks ago when it was still up at the top of all the letterbox lists and they never got around to revising it? Um, yeah, I I do think in the craft categories it will be interesting to see if success here translates a uh, success for poor things uh, mm-hmm. below the line translates into uh, into the Oscars. It seems possible. It, it is also interesting that, you know, these are, you know, th- these didn't go to Oppenheimer, like, which, again, it, it it's sort of, it feels very possible. And maybe this is just me uh, uh, sort of projecting forward. Like, I, I could see such an Oppenheimer push that, that all these sort of, is it going to Barbie or poor things? They actually go to Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer ends up with like eight or nine wins. Uh, but it does seem to shake that kind of, oh, well, yeah, this makes sense. Barbie would get production and it would get costumes. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe there's just going to be Barbie gets song and that's that's where it is. And and she gets to enjoy that. And uh, and we'll we'll move on. We'll move on from there. It also it, and I, I did sort of reference it earlier. It is also fun that Poor Things won visual effects, which I yes. think makes sense, except it's not nominated for. Uh, for the Oscars, so everyone is like, we have no idea who's going to win yeah. at the Oscars. There's mm. no no precursors are directing us. There's no Avatar this year that's going to um, lead us into an easy pick. So folks are a little bit lost there. I will say there is something that like always feels in- enjoyably, but uh, you know maybe uh, th- that's it's not fair. But like infantilizing for all the voters, where it's just like, what's the most recent thing you saw? I saw the BAFTAs. I will vote like the BAFTAs. And like, I do think there is, you know, there is influence and people talk about how, oh yeah, like I saw this person on stage and I, it felt good that they won or they said something that bothered me. I went in a different direction, uh, it, whatever. But it, it is so fun that it's like, there, there's like very little object permanence, it seems, in the minds of Academy voters. Like the this sort of standard replacement Academy voter comes across as very simple when uh when the 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 game the game theorizing is happening about how they're going to vote. Well, and so it, to Jen's question, if there is a all quiet on the western front, I might make a case that it's holdovers cuz holdovers did pretty well not just with Davine. Now, Paul Giamatti did lose, 
but best casting got thrown to holdovers, which is, oh, you know, right. we don't yet have an Oscars for. But for another movie that feels kind of fully American in its storytelling and disposition, I mean, private schools, Britain gets that. That's like their thing. But, um, you know, it does feel like, oh, I was surprised to see that kind of resonate so well. And then to pick up on your point, PT, I thought uh, Davine nailed the speech. So if I'm the Simpleton Academy voter and I saw Davine, it's not like there's any doubt about her at this point, but it's like, I want to see her do that again. And I want to feel good giving her the top prize. It was so good. And then uh, PT, because I know you didn't see the broadcast, Alexander Payne walking her down the stairs, holding her dress. Mm. The whole thing from start to finish was magic. It was just like, <laughs> I was like this, I need this at the Oscars. Like this looks incredible. And, and then, and then she's like, you know, flirting with, <laughs> I can never remember how to pronounce his name correctly. She would tell a GF4. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> He's he, he was and he he took it very well. He blushed very elegantly. It was great. <laughs> like, so yeah, she was she was amazing and such a good example because she's had to give so many speeches by this point. Mm-hmm. She's won so many things that that's the sign of a good Oscars campaign is that so, whoever's coaching her, or helping her at all, you know, if if anyone with her speeches, they're like you got to hold back, like you know, you got to you got to pace yourself and work your way up to the Oscars speech. And I thought this was really well-timed where I'm like, yes, like this is what I've been kind of waiting for in the final push. Uh, so that was great to see. I think, yeah, that, that race is pretty much sewn up. <clears throat> I don't think there's much that would like jeopardize her win at this point. I, I think that uh, the only other category I want to sort of uh, mention here to your uh, initial question, Jen, of where are there potential upsets I don't know if like like we may not consider an upset, but I bet for a lot of people it, it might be zone of interest winning in sound. That feels like a category that most people would go into the Oscars assuming that's one of the ones Oppenheimer will clean up on because there's there's so much sound happening in that in that movie. Um, but as we will get into and discuss, and I'm not intentionally, but maybe I am setting up the segue into talking about the movie. Uh, that you know, it's so important to it, and I could see. You know, I could see that being, yep, that's a BAFTA. It's a British movie. It won outstanding British picture here. Um, that that being the craft category it wins at the BAFTAs is very nice, but that's very British and that's where it happens. But I, do, I could see it winning uh, in the actual Oscars and that being something that folks who don't, haven't seen this movie and and don't know about it maybe folks listening who aren't planning to stay around for the spoiler section might be like huh when it makes all the sense of the world i think when you've seen the movie and the sound designer has been campaigning i've, I've seen mm-hmm. him popping up in lots of places so and i can't remember i think his last name is bird does anyone have that info probably not. Uh, johnny Byrne and tarn oh, Willers. <laughs> okay thank you johnny Byrne was who i was thinking of I think that's the name I've heard a bunch of times. So, um, okay, that was a beautiful set for a segue, but I'm just going to completely spike it in the other direction because I don't want (laughs) to leave this discussion without talking about American fiction because Mm. to me, that was the biggest surprise. Like, Gold Derby had that dead last. Uh, and that's you know and i and i in my rush was just like yeah sure whatever i'll rank it last um i don't think it has a chance in this category because it's american and it's sort of like this category is so stacked and so crowded you know it's it's not gonna have how could it go up against all these other big films but it won and i feel like core jefferson gave a pretty good speech and what it like 
I feel like I was listening to Next Best Next Best Picture. I only caught like the beginning of their episode earlier today, but they were like Matt Matt Nelson was basically like, I think this is done now. Like he's like he's like predicting American Fiction to win the Oscars for adapted screenplay, which I was like, oh, <laughs> like that's I don't know if I would have gone that far, but what do we think? Like, do, is this a huge? How huge is this for American Fiction in adapted screenplay at the Oscars? Uh, I think this is so well deserved. I think it's a huge deal that it beat out um, Zone of Interest in this award show where kind of Zone of Interest was overperforming. Mm-hmm. And is uh, Zone of Interest is a really uh, kind of um, different kind of adaptation. It's not a straight adaptation, right? It's it's very much a zag from the book, but the book is written by a great British novelist, Martin Amos. So like that all should be wind in the sails. Um, And so for everything you just said, and then add that on, um, I think it's a huge win. But there's one problem. I love this movie. I love Core Jefferson. I love that his pedigree is Mike Schur uh, teaching him how to write on Parks and Rec and The Good Place and everything. Listen to the episode. I gushed a whole bunch. But the problem is Greta Gerwig and that she didn't get a Best Picture nomination, right? Mm. And so the fact that she's in that category and that's the only way for, um, I believe PT said, the simpletons who can vote on the Oscars, right? These fools with their heads inside of cardboard boxes. Uh, (laughs) They can't find their way anywhere else. But uh, honestly, I think they are going to make the calculation of Greta Gerwig deserves recognition. The way the snub narrative took off, I just think... It's going to take a lot to not give that to Greta Gerwig to recognize all of Barbie, not just that. But that's me, that's, and I don't read rare. prognosticator websites, so maybe you all have greater insights. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have greater insights. I that That does feel like the great unknown, because for so many of these other awards, Barbie has been in original screenplay where... Mm-hmm. Right. That's what it's it hasn't been competing be. against these other films. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I, I guess the note is Barbie hasn't been winning original screenplay in uh, you know, in all I think it won Critics Choice, maybe. Critics Choice, yeah. Um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't win here uh to to Anatomy of a Fall. So that may be uh a, a slight indication of weakness, but that also could be BAFTA being BAFTA. Um, but yeah, I I I think it's probably too far to say that it's locked up, but uh, I I had kind of, a, again, kind of assumed the Oppenheimer wave was going to build up and it was going to be like, actually, you know, Nolan's going to slide in as the as the favorite, the closer we get, but hasn't really been winning uh, that. So, you know, it, it seems like it's, but yeah, American fiction with with Barbie being there, uh, I, I will note um, and, and will open myself to uh, Greg's justified and understandable ire that we're a com- coming off the All of Us Strangers episode where I said, I would probably replace American fiction with all of us strangers in adapted screenplay, despite loving American fiction. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, more fool me for not only did all of us strangers lose the BAFTA, but it also lost to the movie that I said uh, it could replace. Um, the, the Oscars, the Oscars fairy smote you. It was, like, it was great. You, you like, live by the Oscar fairy, you die by the Oscar fairy. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, but no, I mean, that, I think that would be great. And I feel like, you know, be, because the both uh, Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K. Brown don't seem like they are going to be spoilers in their respective categories, it would be great for American fiction to win something, and uh, that would be fun if it if it were screenplay. 
though I also I think Greg makes a really strong point that there may be a uh, a, a pull among voters to sort of be like, oh my god, like, well, Greta should have gotten director, and since she couldn't be, uh, she wasn't nominated for director, where I wouldn't have voted for her. I will vote for her in <laughs> Uh and then, uh, and then you know, and then she gets a win, and that's fun too. Like that would be great. All right, so we've we've ruined PT's wonderful segue that yeah. he had for us to, to switch to zone of interest. But again, here we go. Here's my here's my transition. Um. Zone of Interest, we mentioned overperformed. I think we didn't specifically mention it beat Poor Things for Best British Film. Yes. Mm. And that was the one I was expecting it to get. Um, so Poor Things, interesting coming out of BAFTAs because on the one hand, it was stronger in craft categories. On the other hand, I would have thought that it would have gotten Best British British Film if it really is in second place at the in the overall award season race. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people think it's right behind uh, Oppenheimer. And this makes me not so sure. And I'm like, can Zone of Interest kind of sneak in there? And snipe some of its categories, um, but yeah, the fact that Zone of Interest got Best British Film and right, it also got the non-English language film. Yes, yeah. yep. Uh, it got Best Film, not in the English language, and Outstanding British Film. A, a yep. wonderful contradiction, and <laughs> right. then Best Sound, which uh, I believe and- the the acceptance speech commented on. I think they were like. <laughs> they they were like they pointed at the because it's a co-production between the UK and Poland. I want to say so. Yes. Mm. Right. So they the, they sort of made fun of that. They were like pointed to the one producer being like best inter- best non-English language film, <laughs> best British film. Eh, eh? Like it was it was pretty funny. That's funny. Um, so yeah, I, I will say I think to 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 further ruin uh, your attempted segue, uh, which I keep ruining it. I think the real big winner and this is boring to say, but it was Oppenheimer. It has no real challenger. It doesn't have right. a a main uh, a, you know, a main person. Like again, like the holdovers got a little bit. The poor things got a little bit. Zone of interest got a little bit. Anatomy of a Fall got something. American Fiction got something, but no one got momentum towards like toppling the big favorite. So sure. Oppenheimer is still sort of slow and steady, winning the race up at director and picture. So you're saying yeah, Oppenheimer sure. has but become the destroyer of worlds? Is that what you're yes. saying? All right, let's yes, go make he it. He has become Oscar. <laughs> he has become Oscar destroyer of campaigns. Oh, the Oscar Prometheus. Oh man, we don't need to go on because there's going to be so much more to talk about after SAG and PGA next weekend. I just wanted to shout out Rye Lane was an awesome movie, and it got a very small release on streaming, and it got a lot of love at the BAFTAs in terms of nominations. People should check that out because you know I love talking about the horse race, but there were some sprinkles in here of really good films that I think people miss. So last I knew Rye Lane was on uh, Hulu and it's like, it, it's before sunset. If it's, you know, people in South London, it's really fun. It's great. So I've almost but, watched it several times, but now I'm like, after watching <laughs> the little clips at BAFTAs, I'm like, ah, why did I sleep on this movie? I need to go back and watch it. So, um, Greg, right. where are you on the old Oak? The old like, oak. One of the, the other film? outstanding British films. You know, oh. the old oak. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if that's one, out in America. The other one that was really crazy is I saw the best animated shorts in the theater. And because the shorts are so short, they threw in two bonus uh, shorts, one of which was called Wild Summon, which is um, basically a nature. It's animated, but it's like a nature documentary about salmon spawning, except the salmon are little human beings with like snorkels and masks and weirdly oversized mouths. And then they're like, here's some 
you know, salmon that get caught by bears, except it's like little human beings getting ripped apart by bears. It is <laughs> wild. And so it was my vote for best British short and it failed. It lost to, I think maybe uh lobster in something. Uh, so it didn't, it didn't that win. Sounds out, right. But, but enjoy that one. Don't, don't leave after the five shorts play at your local theater. Stay for the, the bonus content. <laughs> Stay for the humanoid salmon. Love it. <laughs> We are now ready to start talking about the zone of interest. We're going to share our short takes. So everybody, what was your general reaction to the zone of interest? A really uplifting movie. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, yeah, my, the, my short take reaction is we had uh, an ex- not extended, but a multiple uh, text threads and, and a, a conversation before we started about how we shouldn't do any of our usual bits or jokes about the zone of interest at the start of this episode. So we shifted it all to the BAFTAs to <laughs> avoid anything that felt like it was hiing around, uh, around this movie. I, I think, uh, I think it's really well done. I think it's really important, which makes it sound like, like homework, but, uh, it's, it's, it's really rough and really tough to, to watch. Um, but it, it may be the movie I've been thinking about the most since I saw it, like at this point, quite a few weeks ago. Uh, and it just hasn't really left my mind. So that's that's my short take on it. I bet uh, you're great. Yeah, I agree with what PT's saying is there's it's very hard to say how you feel about this film without falling into a cliche of it's really important or it is your duty to see this film. And I I think that does it a disservice because it's ultimately like hugely inventive and an incredible way to give you a, a really serious message. So I'll return to what my uh, letterbox review was when I saw it uh, back in mid January. And what I said is, you know, I think it's clear people have heard the premise of this film, that this is a film about the family of the commandant of Auschwitz and the life they lead directly next to the wall of the concentration camp. And so if you go in knowing that premise, it is exactly what you think it will be. And yet so much more than that, it is kind of overwhelming and enveloping in this way that is um, so carefully constructed and yet so um, kind of, miraculous and like it's like it, it could you can't imagine human minds coming up with with a, a way to deliver this message so well so um you know so back to the cliches it is a tough watch right um there are very few movies in my mind that i recall ever watching and saying i absolutely loved every frame of that and i will never watch it again and this is now the prime example of that that returning to this seems like something i don't have the strength to do but i am so very grateful that i watched it the one time follow that up jen and don't use cliches (laughs) (laughs) well so i'm gonna i'm just gonna say that this film is absolutely brilliant and the thing i didn't expect because just knowing the premise And knowing that the big deal about this was that it never shows any of the violence or atrocities that occurred in Auschwitz. It only is showing the sort of everyday mundane domestic life of this family right next door. And so you kind of see hints and implications of it. And that's actually much in some ways like more horrifying or upsetting or or gut wrenching 
than if it, if we had had sort of a very graphic and gory portrayal of what's happening on the other side of the wall. And so I think from that, I kind of knew that that was what I was getting into going into it. The thing I didn't expect was that from a purely formalist perspective, this film is immaculate. Like it is, it is shot perfectly. Everything from every, like, I feel like every frame is perfectly composed, both in terms of like, I noticed so much like symmetry and kind of things in the foreground and the background and and also just from a production design perspective where like there's so much attention to detail, everything you can tell is positioned and placed with purpose. Um, even like tiny little objects and stuff like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and the edit, like the editing. So everything that like makes this a film, right. Everything that from, from a film form perspective for me, I was like totally blown away by, and I was just like, I cannot believe how staggeringly, beautiful and yet utterly horrifying everything I'm seeing and hearing is. Um, and so it's that weird com combination of like the precision filmmaking with, and, and like, and all the shots are sort of set from this like weird, like really unusual height where it's almost like waist level. Um, and, you know, the big thing I, I sort of heard about this was that, sort of has a big brother setup where like the camera is often sort of tucked away and there's like, you know, laundry hanging in the foreground in a way that blocks seeing what the characters are doing. Right. There's so many choices in this that are so smart for what it's trying to show um, that that was the thing that I was sort of like really taken to take. Like I knew I kind of knew all the other stuff, like all of the Holocaust content I was like preparing myself for but i was not prepared for this from like a film like a film student nerd <laughs> sort of perspective <laughs> um like this feels something that's gonna feels like a film that's going to get used in film classes um in a good way it, it seems like every major especially like white dude and i don't mean that in a dismissive way a filmmaker name checks Stanley Kubrick. And I think of like Christopher Nolan and David Fincher, particularly are sort of like, Oh, like Kubrick, Kubrick are huge influence. And they have both had movies that came out uh, to varying degrees of awards nomination uh, success. Uh, but this is the first movie I feel like I've ever seen. That was like, if you told me Stanley Kubrick directed this, I would believe it um, even more so than Spielberg's AI, which was developed you know, with Kubrick and blah, blah, blah. It still felt like a Spielberg movie, but the, everything that you're saying, Jen, it was like, Oh yeah. Like this has that, like it's, it's, it's detached but in a way that like somehow draws you in closer, like it makes you sort of lean in to everything that's happening and pay more attention to every part of the frame. And, and yeah, feel like a, some weird combination of voyeur, but also mm -hmm. like it's part of a surveillance state that you're, you're monitoring what's happening here. Um, that felt so thematically resonant with the movie while also just, on a on a on a pure cinema level, being uh, you know, uh, yeah, this weird sort of like uh, pleasurable. It's weird to describe the movie that way. Um, for like, as Greg said, it it was it's hard to think about leaving and being like, can't wait to to tuck back in to this one. Mm -hmm. But like, I I actually like could see myself watching it again because of like some, all these formalist choices that work together so well. And like, I hate using the word beautiful to describe this film. And yet like, that's mm. sort of what I find myself doing. And it yeah. feels really weird. Well, that's part of the project, right? Is that you mm. have to get sucked into this world and you have to be a part of that. Um, I was just going to say, I've heard a few critics in describing this say that, you know, part of why it's such a struggle to talk about is it, it almost becomes a piece of like 
performance art or visual uh, art instead of you know, really a narrative film of any kind, the story that is present doesn't matter at all. And we are, um, you know, staying spoiler free, but there's there are a lot of really unexpected formalist choices. And it kind of starts the minute you sit down, I'll spoil the opening, which is there. It, the film starts with a very long kind of soundscape overture, mm-hmm. which is more tonal than musical, I think, as as I recall it. And um, it's this weird kind of hyperbaric chamber. Uh, I think that's the right thing, right? That's where uh, scuba divers get into their uh, their submarines, right? And it's weird that you need this way in which it kind of changes the pressure around you and makes you then able to enter into the world of this film. And it ends roughly the same way i guess i'm not going to spoil anything just the last shot of the film um but uh you know there's this this catch and release quality to that and that doesn't spoil anything but the way it becomes this intense experience you have in the theater is is just supported in these ways that i think pt is right to call them kubrickian and jen you're right to say like there's it's so specific and they clearly got exactly what they wanted and didn't leave anything to chance and um it's pretty incredible i i will say there were some walkouts in my theater and when people walked out Mm. i was like don't blame you at all uh because it is (laughs) it is intense and so as we as we reference our kind of short takes i i think it's only fair that you you know people be aware that this is not a, a light undertaking, even though it's totally worth it, I think, by all three of our own mm-hmm. evaluations. I think that's a great indicator we should move to the the recommendation algorithm in which we establish the audience of a film. Question mark, who's walking out of this movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in general, we always acknowledge this this film. Not every film is for everyone. And so we try to figure out like who is who's going to be the but this one is the biggest challenge we've probably had yet because of exactly what Greg was talking about in terms of like the just the the subject matter is so tough. Would would you even like barring the everyone should watch this movie, right? Which is something we also said about Killers of the Flower Moon, right? In terms of it's it's an important movie to see, but are we actually recommending it to anyone? Yeah, it's it's hard because I I responded to and and agreed with what what Craig just said about like I don't blame anyone who walks out, but just in thinking about it as you set up this segment, Jen, I guess if there's anyone who's just sort of like this is too like draining and and difficult because of the genocide aspect, the 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 inhumanity that's on display. Uh, in the movie and, and you know, with the knowledge that you come into it with uh, about history, how, however much or little, you know, I, I think everyone has enough basic knowledge to understand uh, the, the context of what's going on. Um, like, I, I get it. Like, I, and I think that's the sort of like, yes, like you should be absolved of the requirement of watching this movie if you are just like not able to emotionally prepare for it. But I could also see people being like, I find this boring. I'm not interested in what's happening in this household. Mm. Uh, and I feel like those people, it's like, no, shut up and sit down. Like, you need to pay attention. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of a, like, take your medicine, which, again, is not, uh, you take your medicine, do your homework, uh, eat your vegetables, which is not the most fun thing to say. And, and, like, that's hard to recommend. But I do think that if it sounds like this movie might be drab and boring and a little bit like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, Maybe this is like a, a 10 minute short film. I don't need 
whatever, an hour and 50 minutes of it. Uh, I think you do. And I think that it's something that uh, it's, it's actually really worth, it's worth your time and it's worth it to see, um, you know, to see it, to see how it unfolds. And this is maybe uh, broaching back to the short take slightly, but uh, I, I have also seen and, and heard some of the critics that, that Greg referenced who are kind of like, you know, what, there's no narrative. Like what's the story. There's also like, is there a character arc? Like, is anyone actually like changing and growing and learning or are we just seeing, you know, it, it's so quotidian. It's so mundane that like, eh, I don't know. Like what, what are we doing here? I almost feel like we as the audience are the protagonists of it. And we are the ones who are changing and evolving as the movie unfolds. Like the, the, the audience is the, are, are the ones um, whose, whose journey we should be, be tracing. And so in that sense, yeah, it's weird to say, like, I recommend everyone do it. If they can think they can handle it, uh, I recommend everyone uh, go through this process, which is not a great way to recommend a movie by calling it a process. But, uh, mm. yeah. I mean, I think this movie gets as close as we can to answering the question of, like, how could something like the Holocaust have happened? You know what I mean? Like, And I feel like historians or, you know, even like history students, maybe is what I should say, often you know, when they first start learning about what happened and stuff like that, ask that question. We're like, how could this have happened? Like, this is just so confounding from a human perspective. Like, how could humanity have let this happen? Right. And I feel like this film does such a good job of illustrating exactly how it happened. You know what I mean? Like to be like, this is, these are the conditions in which this was able to occur. Right. <laughs> um, these are the exact people who were facilitating this whole thing and who were benefiting from it. And, and we get to see their everyday life. So uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I honestly have been thinking a lot about my wife, uh, just daydreaming about her. No, uh, because, you know, she's somebody who has a strong interest in history, has seen a lot of Holocaust, reads a lot of Holocaust narratives. You know, um, you know, we are blessed to be here in Boston. So Elie Wiesel was just around a lot and you could see him at public events a lot. And um, I can't imagine forcing her to watch this and it's really interesting um she was the person who showed me schindler's list just you know to to have a point of comparison and the the intensity of this is so different than that film even though i would describe both as incredibly intense so to pt's language of like i would not disrespect anybody who couldn't handle it and you know i i'm certainly i think uh my wife has heard what it the premise is learned all about it um Again, we're parents of young children, so it's hard to be like, oh, you're one night out this week. Why don't you go grab uh, a seat to to that film? Um, but at the same time, I think um, I would never I don't give any disrespect to people who say that's not for me. So I, I did see it at like a two o'clock matinee on Boston Common, and it was primarily older folks with me. I would say I was probably the youngest. Um, sometimes at that theater, you get uh, the cool Emerson College film students who are there for awards uh, movies. Um, and I think they were still on spring break. And so it felt to me, and this is me stereotyping, that it was a lot of kind of elderly couples who had like taken the drive into the city because they were seeking this out and felt that it was mm. important and major. And I assume some people in the room were of the Jewish faith. I am not just since this is audio and, and that's not established at anywhere or anything. Um, and so I, I felt like as people left that it was like, they felt like they took as much as they could handle 
and that they weren't dissatisfied with the experience, but they just felt like they couldn't take any more. And so yeah. that makes me hesitate to to recommend it. But, you know, if this is an area of interest, it you know, one thing we haven't said is I think there's a clear resonant message to the present day um, and not just connected to the rise in anti-Semitism that has uh, unfortunately come back in the last uh, decade or so. Um, but it's um, something important in that way too and and among like my reactions is also kind of a a charge to be mindful because it the film demonstrates that it's pretty easy to be the people over the wall right and so you want to make it uh your mission not to be that so um so yeah will this like burn up the charts on netflix i don't think so and i i don't think it it should but um, you know, the last concern I'll say is just like, I think there are a lot of people who would benefit from seeing this who uh, just have no interest for gross, terrible reasons. And that's a shame because I think this film could make a big difference in the lives of some. This does feel like a film that could end up as a part of high school curriculum. You know what I mean? Like as the movie, the Holocaust movie. I can't I actually can't remember what movie we watched. I remember watching lots of Civil War movies in my <laughs> in in uh, middle school and high school, but not. I can't I can't remember if we watched Schindler's List. That's probably the one that we would have though, right? Like You didn't watch Glory over and over because it's like we Massachusetts, did. let's go. Well, let's you know, go. so I'm saying we watched Glory and the the blue and the gray is the other mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah, the T V yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we watch. yeah. Like I have distinct memories of watching those films as a part of history class. Yeah. I, so like that that would be the way that this that people are I don't want to use the word force, but have the opportunity to watch this where they wouldn't otherwise opt in is at school. So like there's that. And like, I think I was listening to a podcast where someone pointed out where that because this is not graphic, that it's actually more likely to get shown mm. in a school. Right. Because it's like, because the rating is not like R, you know what I mean? Like it's like, while it's horrifying in every frame, it's horrifying for not the reasons that things get banned from schools <laughs> or like for being right, inappropriate. Yeah. Um, for violence and stuff like that. I don't know if did we actually figure anything out during that? I don't know. Well, we should just the go teacher the teacher in me would love to be able to un like roll in the old A V cart and put the like that's how we show movies now. But you know, put this on <laughs> like without context. Um because do, do you, you have know, it in microfiche, Greg? Is that is that what you're asking? Um <laughs> Where, where's it, your it overhead is, markers? <laughs> Maybe this is rhetorical situation content, but I will say it really just feels like if you walked into this blind, it would be incredible, right? The mm-hmm. fact that from the opening frame, I'm sitting there saying like, oh my God, these people are monstrous and I know exactly who they are and what's going on kind of ruins the effect of the film itself. And, you know, I I don't know if it was the marketing or film discourse that that kind of spoiled it to me. But to your point, Jen, if this was a history class and you just let the the high schoolers kind of see this normal, boring life and let them put those clues together as as it unfolded, I think that would be mind blowing and far yeah. superior uh, with no disrespect to Master Spielberg uh, than sat doing the permission slips to get everybody to watch uh, Schindler's List. So. Now, we are uh, only probably a couple of years away from the day the clown cried being widely available. So that may change. That may change our, our calculus on this. 
Is it bad that I don't know what that is? Like what? That's that's the Jerry Lewis movie that he made that was about being a clown uh, in a concentration camp. That when he finished it, he hated it so much he locked it away, and he oh. said it could only be shown publicly so many years after his death, and we're a couple years away from that. <laughs> oh um, wow! Okay, so uh, yeah, it's it's supposed to be just wildly uh, tonally off and just like. A, a, a huge swing that like isn't maybe that dissimilar from like a life is beautiful which of course you know, a lot of people really loved and was very successful but like he finished making it he put a bunch of money into it and was just like this is a disaster no one can ever see this while i'm alive i was trying to inject some levity but i, I only i, I only well, created I'm, confusion i'm glad you bring up life is beautiful because this is sort of the opposite in terms of type of holocaust movie because at least life is life is beautiful I think did as well as it did because it had the warm, heartfelt father son relationship at the center of it. Right. And then it was like, it's surrounded by the horrors of the Holocaust. This it's like the family that we're watching. They're a fairly normal family from a lot of perspectives. But when you think about who they are and what they're doing and why they are where they are, then they become like, there's, there's so little that you, you feel for them that it's kind of the opposite experience of, Life is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. So, but that doesn't mean it's it's not as effective as telling telling the story of the Holocaust for sure. So we're recommending it to everyone except the people who don't think they can watch it. Is that where we landed? <laughs> we're posing yeah. the challenge: Can you handle this movie? <laughs> maybe you can't, but maybe it's going to motivate you to be like, <laughs> "Challenge accepted." I'm going to go watch this. Can you handle it? Dot com. On the on the little the, the postcards they hand out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Okay. So I think yeah, I think we're more than ready to go into spoiler mode. I think it's been actually pretty hard to talk about this without actually spoiling it because I I do agree with Greg. There were a couple of things in this film that I was genuinely shocked by, and not just from like a shocked, like horrified by, but like surprised that it the film turned this way or like did this. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about those things. Um, so we are going to go into spoiler mode. If you have not seen the zone of interest. And our resounding recommendation uh, is is not driving you away uh, naturally. Go really, you know, really go see it. It's it's especially if you are, have an appreciation for film and art and what it can do with history. Like it is just a mind blowing experience. I think an upsetting one, but a mind blowing one. And so, you know, if you if if you haven't seen the film and you don't want it spoiled, we are now going to go into spoiler mode now. Okay. Feels, feels too peppy for. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I'm like this is. But I don't know what you can do. I mean, it is what it I is. Know. It's our spoiler mode music. Um, what to you was the most surprising thing in this film, or the moment where you were just like, "Whoa, I did not see that coming." To me, the most surprising thing was that this wasn't a story about people in denial. This was a story about people who were their eyes were wide open and they had no problem mm-hmm. with what was happening. Like, that's what I assumed. And I, I don't know if that's directly what Craig meant uh, in his Letterboxd review, but that's, like, that your your Letterboxd review, like, crystallized, like, that thought in my mind um, of, like, oh, I knew, like, I knew the outline. I knew what I was getting into, I thought. But it was, like, oh, this is actually, like, heavier and darker because these people are not, like, 
what? Like, I don't hear that. Like, I don't know what's going on, but they're just sort of like, yeah, cool. Like, that's great. Like yeah. we're, we're in on this completely. And then there are some characters who get like, you know, the, the mother, uh, mother slash mother-in-law, depending on the, your perspective, uh, who, who shows up the grandmother, uh, to add a third relationship, uh, who is like, who is a little bit more like unaware and who faces, when she faces what's happening, like freaks out and, and has to leave. Um, but yeah, that's, that was the thing. And, and the, the line, Sandra Hewler's line to the, when she's mad about the mom leaving and says something about like, I'll get, I'll get my husband to turn you into ash to one of the Jewish slaves yeah, the, working the in the house. Yeah. That's when it was just like, Oh, Oh my God. Like she has, yeah, she knows everything. Like she knows all all that's happening. I'm the one who, who wanted to project onto them that they, that's kind of what I was thinking about the journey. Like I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. I wanted it to be the story of someone who was learning and unraveling and maybe starting to feel guilty, but there's no guilt and there's no remorse and there's no change because they're just completely dehumanized these mm-hmm. human, these other people uh, in in the world. And I think that that grandmother figure when she comes to visit is so important because it shows like a huge differential, right? Because it's like she, as someone who hasn't lived there a long time, is not physically used to anything like the smoke really bothers her seeing the 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 bright lights from the fires, hearing the gunfire, all of these things that for a normal person would be very disturbing, unsettling, making you physically ill everyone else around her is just like no problem this is not this is not affecting us at all and so so the fact that they are so comfortable and so used to this environment when it's so very clearly and 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 not even that but like talking about that it's like this idyllic dream place that they've always wanted to live crazy like so because they they feel like the the um the the sandra huler character who's now i'm not remembering right now um the commandant's wife like like she Hedwig, that's her name. Hedwig, right? uh, yeah, yeah, Hedwig. Which I'm just like you know, staying on Harry Potter. Like, why are we? Like, um, uh, I was offended by that. Uh, but she, but she says like, this is what we've always dreamed. The dream that we've always been building towards. Our children are healthy and happy and strong. And like, why would we ever leave here? And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's insane. <laughs> like that. Like you're scrubbing your children down because you think that they just swam in a river with dead bodies. Like, I don't know like what. Yeah. I'm going to say, I don't think it's because it was dead bodies. I think it was because it, they might've touched Jewish blood. Uh, oh, That was my read on it. That it's, makes they, so didn't ca- they didn't care about the skeletons or the skulls. It was the because, unclean people. Uh, Greg, did you pick up on that? I feel really bad for not picking up on that. <laughs> Uh, I didn't interpret it that way, but I have nothing but like, yeah, that makes more sense. So I, I have no yeah. rebuttal to it, and nor do I want one because because I, I think it's <laughs> right. And, and I want to just emphasize um, agreeing with PT, the children, too. Right. I mean, there's a scene very early where the kids, the two boys, I believe, are laying in bed and they're swapping gold teeth that have been mm-hmm. pried from the victims and given to the children and it's this kind of innocent childhood moment that is absurdly horrifying and you know that you're just taken into this world where this is the commonplace and and the other very early scene is just this kind of distribution of some clothes and um 
the way uh, uh, Sandra Hewler's character just tries on a uh, fur coat and is just modeling it and thinking about it and even uses the lipstick in the pocket. And it's like, you know, it's it's you're familiar with that type of scene because it's like, oh, it's a domestic housewife dreaming of a life of glamour that she's denied. And then you're like, no, it's so different than that and so much more horrifying. And um, I just I, I think the film is very deliberate about giving you familiar scenes. And Jen, your point about the big brother camera work is that too, right? It's like we're used to that kind of indulgent voyeuristic behavior in reality TV culture. And it's like, you're a part of this. You're guilty too. And it's really unsettling. And and part of its oppressiveness is that it's kind of unrelenting in that way. And you don't get mm-hmm. any kind of break from feeling like, yeah, like this could easily be me or, you know, my sympathies. There were times I honestly, we're being honest here, felt myself rooting. Like, I hope he gets that big promotion. He's sure working hard. And I'm like, no, what are you doing? Like, that's unacceptable. Like you can't, but it's, it's such a clever way to mess with us using the kind of structures of narrative right and and mm-hmm. you know yep. i always think uh dan Harmon has a great essay on um on the hero's journey and story structure and he's like all you have to do is name a character and our sympathies are instantly with them and this movie like pushes that to the extreme like it's actually hard to break our our sympathies off these characters even though we see every moment how monstrous they are but it's like mm-hmm. you're accustomed to putting yourself into them and kind of rooting for those characters even though you very much are not on their side <laughs> very quickly it's 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 really tough it's it's cognitive dissonance at its absolute most powerful because because it's really trying to help you question everything that you've seen before jen what were some moments that you felt well, let me rephrase your question. What are some moments that are going to stick with you that you're really like PT said it that, you know, this movie is the movie that that has stuck in his mind the most or he's thought the most about any particular moments that are that for you? So I don't see I don't want to zoom us too far ahead and talk about the ending. But one of them is the ending mm-hmm. in terms of like the, the, the cut intercutting between the past and the present. I was just like that was one of the things I did really did not see coming. But in terms of moments that will stick with me i sort of wish i hadn't listened to critics talking about this movie because all of them talked about the fur coat scene and so that one actually was i was sort of desensitized to because i had new i knew and it's in it's in the is it in the trailer i can't mm-hmm. remember now so like i had no i knew too much about that going in and was like therefore sort of slightly less surprised and horrified um but i feel like the there's one sequence where the commandant is locking up for the night and it's so long. Like he's Mm. going back and forth, closing this door, going back this way, closing this door. And then he sort of like systematically works his way up to upstairs when he's, cause he's going to bed. And first of all, I kept being like, why are there so many doors? Like what, (laughs) like what is happening right now? Um, And I was like, Oh, I guess it's, Maybe for security reasons, like in in case someone escapes from the the camp and like they need to, you know, they need to lock down or something like that to make like a chambered system. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, this is mirroring the crematorium blueprints, which we had seen like Mm. a couple scenes before. I'm like or like or a gas chamber, like it's like the chambered nature of the home. And there's so many shots that that instigate from 
that front door and then like we quickly cut to another room when someone enters another room and so those are that like sequences like that i think are what it really which seems weird because like you know i could easily say the teeth right the bones in the river the um the girl in at night planting like there's so many i could list that are like just like upsetting but i think it's sequences like that that are really going to stick with me the most because it's because it, it like really just forces you to sit with it you know what i mean to be like oh mm. this is someone living their everyday life and yet it is such a crazy circumstance that they are wholly accepting of um i don't know if that was a good answer to your question but what what about you two like what are things that stick are gonna stick with you i i will say in you know in addition to some of the some of the you know that moment some of the moments that uh you know, we've already talked about um you know they're, they're the again like mother-in-law character um, there's sort of two kind of mirror moments with her. Um, one is, you know, she's arrived, she's being shown around the garden and is just like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is so beautiful. And then, you know, she says something about kind of like, oh, like my old boss could be like over there. Like, do you think yeah. like that lady, mm-hmm. like she was always like, she always sucked. Like, uh, <laughs> and you know, like it, there was this kind of like, oh, like, haven't we, aren't we on top now? And like, it kind of tapped into that little bit of like, victory dance component to it and again was another that was another moment you know because like greg said the, the the thing with the teeth that's in the first like it's certainly the first 10 minutes of action you know we, we yeah. can talk about yeah. the overture moment but i feel like it's the first 10 minutes of the whole movie there's not a lot of you know time uh, apart from your what what i brought into the theater there was not a lot of uh feigning that there was confusion within this family um but yeah the, the grandmother showing up and sort of almost like crowing about a jewish woman that she knew and used to work for and how uh you know she may finally have been laid low um but then contrasting that with when she's faced in the night with the the glow of the furnace the sort of hellish projection onto it and then that she gets the that sort of photo negative night vision which has only been the uh, one of the jewish servants like going out and trying to do something positive and helpful for the workers and planting food around um but we see the that grandmother like scrambling to get all of her clothes so she can pack up and leave because she's so horrified at the sight of what she's actually actually confronting what's happening mm-hmm. though the contra- the contrast of those two moments uh has uh has stuck with me you also mm. reminded me of the boots, the washing of the boots. Mm-hmm. That's pretty early mm. in the film too, where I was just like, "Oh no!" Like he's wa- they're washing the boots for him because they're covered in blood, mm-hmm. um, and it's like no big deal. <laughs> Gotta clean them, and they don't they don't make anyone else take their shoes off. But then he takes his boots off, and I'm like, "Oh, that's weird." And then I'm like, "Oh, that's why." Okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, what about you, Greg? Uh, two that haven't been mentioned, um, the, you know, the domestic staff, I think are a major source of that kind of, um, you know, the, the horrifying nature of it all, because you recognize that these individuals are doing all they can to avoid the, the, their fate Mm -hmm. and are just suffering this family through, um, the gardener in the image of the gardener spreading the ashes kind of, I believe they're under rose bushes even, which is kind mm-hmm. of something that should be too on the nose, but is just like, it was one of those moments for me where I was like, it's everything. Like anything beautiful in a frame on this is the product of, of this hatred and this genocide. And, uh, you know, I think there is a shot where, where he 
find some teeth or what have you in there. But, um, you know, it's, it's horrifying. And then the other one, and it's, it's really, I, I can't, uh, necessarily pinpoint why this is stuck with me so much, but the, I, I think a lot about the woman who, um, a, appears to be essentially the sexually abused prisoner that the commander keeps as his plaything, right? And is having an affair with. And and particularly she, you know, he's on a, I believe on a phone call and she enters and clearly is just doing all the motions to prepare herself for their encounter. And one of the last steps is like this hair toss, like this very dramatic, like mm-hmm. throw all her hair back behind her. And there's something about that like having to beautify yourself for the man who's about to rape you, which is the only way you don't get to, to you get to stay out of the ovens. is just like so incredibly horrifying to me and mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of has stuck in my head. And it's literally the hair flip. Cause it's like, like at that most minute level, the monster's going to make you also look alluring. Right. Like that just to me has, you know, and it, that's all that we see of that woman, really. But it's just like so, so horrifying. So for me, are- it was like the extent to which he has to clean himself afterwards. Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like that they make they really linger on that lie. and make you like sit with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like there's like a whole system he has set up with like the towels, like the clean towels and the dirty towels. And like, oh, my gosh, yeah. It, was, yeah. it was terrible. Ugh. Um, So, yeah. Um. I can't imagine why someone wouldn't want to see this movie. <laughs> I know. But but at the same time it's like really fascinating because you're because there is a little bit of suspense I find in terms of like cuz it took me a minute to all the things we've been talking about took me a minute to figure out. You know what I mean to mm-hmm. be like wait, what is this? Oh no. Like you know what I mean like the, like that continued throughout the movie where I kept being like this is bizarre and then when you put it together it, it's just like totally horrifying. So um yeah. Uh, okay. So there are other things that I feel like are somewhat, somewhat ambiguous in terms of the film, or like we can kind of interpret in different ways or unpack. One of them, and this is what I alluded to earlier, the most surprising moment where I just was like flabbergasted that this cut happened was when the the commandant, like he's been partying, he calls Hedwig, she doesn't care at all. Is like, why are you waking me up? Uh, <laughs> uh, and then he starts like dry heaving on the stairwell, and then he looks to the side, and then the film cuts to what I assume is a museum in Auschwitz, current currently, like in mm-hmm. present day, and it's a bunch of people vacuuming and cleaning and polishing the exhibit. It's like they're opening the museum for the day. right, right, yeah. So. What did what did either of you make of this? Like what first of all, why is this in here? What is it supposed to mean? And sort of like what yeah, like what and what does it add to the film in terms of the this is a project, like an intellectual project? It's a great question. Uh I okay, because uh, I I, th- I think it's very complicated. I I I've sort of had I've had a bunch of thoughts and so I'm trying to figure out what's the best way mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. sort of go into them. Um, I I sort of took it as like the first time and, and that he ever looked at the possibility that he won't be the hero. Like it's the first time that he is seeing 
the trajectory of history where he where they lose and what like he did what is looked at as not like a monument to a great project that was successfully done by the good pure master race but instead this horrific terrible thing Mm. and so it's not necessarily that he's looking and being like oh my god like i shouldn't have done that but he's looking at like oh like i may lose like i may be like not even that i'm wrong but just that i'm gonna lose and that like that's that was my initial sort of take on it um i i also feel like there's something interesting about how like it's all about cleaning like it's it's setting up the day it's vacuuming and it's 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 wiping down the the uh displays of you know the piles of shoes and i think it's like you know one of the box cars Mm -hmm. um behind behind museum glass uh, or maybe it's other clothes. I, I forget. Um, but that there, you know, there's something about even in the attempts to show how awful all of this was, it's still kind of tidied up compared to what actually happened. Like it's like it, it, it's almost like in a weird way, it almost felt like like it's it's acknowledging the limits of the movie by acknowledging the limits of the museum of just like it was all worse it was all worse than you could possibly have imagined um and we're just doing the best we can to tell you about it and mm-hmm. even in doing so it's it's sanitized for you to be able to take in what's going on like you again you the audience not you uh uh Rudolph the the character right so yeah i don't know Th- those were my two sort of conflicting thoughts about it um, Greg, what did, what did you think? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, that, that answer resonates with, uh, Marty at the end of, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, right? In some ways. Yep. And so yep. that, that's really of interest to me and not exactly how I'd seen it though. Uh, though it's pretty convincing as a read, uh, Jen, I'm going to throw it to you with the question of, did the character see it or is it just a cut? So, but not right now. Right. Just save it. Start thinking okay. about that. Uh, so, um, I, I think this is the the biggest swing in a film full of really crazy, surprising moments. And my read on it was slightly different than PT's um, because I think my initial impulse is is thinking that the character realizes that, oh my God, this wasn't about getting the promotion. This wasn't about impressing my superiors. This was about something horrifying. And the fact that you've committed these atrocities at a level that there will be museums to you someday and to the atrocity you committed is really like a horrifying thought, right? Like you're not just a little evil, like all of humanity will band together to create a museum to your uh, evilness uh, and your depravity. But the that was you know my initial thought and then the the second layer is that the the cleaning becomes so prominent and i will say i I like pt's read of the cleaning as the act of of cleaning in the theater i thought about how mundane it was right that even in the kind of like you are doing and i i use this word specifically but carefully which is you are doing great deeds impactful deeds right horrifying awful things but things that will be remembered and yet even the greatest atrocities you can imagine are eventually going to be minimum wage workers cleaning the glass around them in some ways right so so kind of in that language pt was using it's like you are going to win in the moment win in quotes but the long arc of history is that you're going to lose and 
I think that to me is a really interesting question because it could have been school children seeing these exhibits, right? Um, and that would have been impactful in a very different way. But it wasn't. It was how much work goes into the, how much kind of simple mundane work and how familiar these monuments to the atrocities become. And so the the last piece I'll fold into that is, I think that um, the majority of people, if you know, we're we're so far past those survivors of the Holocaust, there are some still with us, and their stories have been told, and so on. But the majority of the the audience, I would say, has to have experienced the Holocaust through some sort of mediated experience like this. And so, I do think it's a, a way to draw us back in as well, right? Not in that kind of complicit way, like I mentioned before, but just to remember that, like, you knew this story right and and this is is in line with what pt was saying like you knew it but you didn't know it right like you you this is the version you know and now we've shown you like yeah you see the giant pile of shoes you know i've been to the holocaust museum here in, in the states a, a few times it's like you see the pile of shoes and you're like that's crazy that's a lot of shoes and like you don't really think about the way those were taken and who took them and why they took them and what feet were they on. It's like the immensity of it you can't handle. So the last point mm-hmm. I'll, I'll make in reading the scene is um, I, I did hear the director not explain his exact reasoning, but note that he was very careful not to have him vomit. And the reason is because it is dry heaving, like you said. It's like he's starting to come to realize this, but he still stifles it all down because that's what evil does. You still project that you are in control and the good guy. So um, that this wasn't a, oh, my God, what have I done moment? This was mm-hmm. a, oh, just never mind, back to business uh, type <laughs> moment. So uh, what have we missed, Jen? And or what do you think? Did the character see these things in kind of a literal sense or is it something else? So well, so the first I'll say is that what I love about this is there are so many things you can take away from it, which I think is why it's so brilliant. Um, I didn't initially think of it as even though if we think about the editing of it because he's looking and then it immediately cuts, it implies that he's kind of like having a thought or whatever we see next is sort of what he is thinking or seeing somehow. But I sort of more interpret it as like, isn't kind of the whole point of this movie? that we think of this as this ama- this major historical tra- travesty but he's just he doesn't he doesn't think of it really at all you know what i mean like that this is just him doing his job and actually the alternative reading cuz i also thought about all the things that you both of you said but the alternative reading i think of him dry heaving to me was because we show him getting a checkup or the film shows him getting a checkup a few scenes earlier and the doctor's like, you know, everything see does everything seem normal, right? And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Uh no problems, no complaints. And and then clearly he's like something is wrong with his body, right? Um and I feel like part of that was, you know, throughout the film we have so many moments of like toxicity, like environmental and physical toxicity um as a result of them, you know, which I think is very you know, as a metaphor or a stand-in for the moral toxicity of this, right? But I think to me, it was sort of like his body even can't even deny the horrors of what he's doing, but his brain, because he sucks it back down, right, and move and mm. moves on with his life, he, it's so easy for him to sort of to, to to ignore it, right, and to not think about it in that way, um, and not be like, hmm, I wonder why I'm I feel terrible. Maybe it's because I'm doing these terrible things and living in a place where pe- thousands of people's bodies are being burnt. <laughs> 
<laughs> and turned into ash and smoke, right? And I'm breathing that in, in that in, and 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 ingesting it every day. Um, and so so that was that was the other reading that I had was the whole point is that film form dictates that that is what he's thinking about, but it's not what he's thinking about at all, right? Mm. Um, and then the other thing I thought about it in terms of the cleaning, and I mentioned this in my letter, my very short letterbox review because it was very late at night by the time I wrote it when I got home um, <laughs> from the movie was never has domesticity been so weaponized. And I feel like so much of the power of this film is the constant cleaning and household chores, the gardening, all of the things that we associate with just everyday life and knowing what that was all working towards. And then to see that in this other context almost is to say it hasn't stopped, right? To be like, this museum is still kind of profiting off the tourism Mm. of people going to visit it and they're still working hard every day to keep it clean, keep it maintained. But it, you know, and so I, to me, it was like a, it was a, to me, I read it as a parallel of like, we've been seeing so many images in this, it, you know, that were horrifying of just this family trying to keep their house clean and, and live a, live a quote unquote good life. And like, like the Fuhrer said, right. That they should. And like, um, and so many wars have been waged in the name of the nuclear family and of protecting your family and and, and a way of life, right? Uh, that I feel like that was kind of it, the move, the film drawing both of the past and the present together in that specific context. And like, yeah, I don't, and also like the emotional distance between how we consume, because it, it's also a huge contrast between the way that we've been watching this family live their life kind of in the corner and in the shadows and very voyeuristically to suddenly be in the context where there's a wall of glass between us and what's mm. happening. That seems very purposeful as well to be like, look, like the only way we can process this right now. And this is what the film is actively trying to work against is this, this kind of like critical distance uh, as opposed to immersion, which I think is the project of the film. So, yeah. <laughs> and I I liked a lot of those points and and the th things that you were saying were bouncing in my mind off of um, one of the things that Greg uh, referenced earlier, which was the way that we saw the servants in the house mm -hmm. for the duration of the movie as, you know, and that they're prisoners of the camp and they're trying to sort of, we stay to the side, we stay quiet. This is how we stay safe by, you know, oh, like they asked for something, I got to run and do it. And like really trying to just always disappear uh, as much as possible into the sides. Like, isn't that also what, as you were saying, Greg, like minimum wage laborers, the people who come in and clean, the people who pick our foods, the yeah. people who, you know, clean, uh, clean up uh, around in all, all the places where we are. Like, isn't that also sort of how they feel they have to be now to sort of continue to draw those parallels between uh, you know, then and now and sort of, you know, how are, what are the inhumane things that are happening these days and where, where are the, the spaces where maybe we should be reflecting on how we're treating fellow human beings? So the, the other big thing I wanted to ask about was, and I think somebody mentioned this earlier, maybe it was Greg, the soundscape, the, the, the blank screen. Um, mm. I believe there are three total. Two, I think I counted two black and one red. I think the red one's in the middle. Um, but this, this, and I was listening to the big picture, and apparently, uh, Chris Ryan thought that the projector was broken. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I recall thinking something similar about like, this is 
Like this, is this seems the movie? intentional, but yeah. like, are we are we sure this is what's supposed to happen? <laughs> right, and 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 I think it was Sean Fantasy, you know, very elegantly ex- put it, recontextualize it as like this is the film explicitly trying to draw attention to it to its choices and to itself as a as a project, and so because um, it's taking it's purposely pulling you out of the immersive story. And what we're seeing, the slice of life every day, it's purposely pulling it out to get you to sort of think about it, um, I think is what was his explanation. But like, what do you feel like the effect or the purpose potentially of those moments are where where there's no image and there is sound? Well, I want to give credit to the way Greg was describing it when he spoiled the movie uh, in the non-spoiler section. But no, I think that that's right. Where it feels like we're we're entering into the artifice of the movie where we're, 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 we're shifting perspectives. We're shifting to a different world that felt, that felt like the a right explanation of how the one, the opening and, and the ending was, um, I forget, am I wrong in thinking that like in the ending, it was a white screen and not a black screen. I, I saw it the furthest to go. So I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I thought one of them was a white screen, which That's then black, right, red and white also tracks for the, the flag of, oh, of true. The um, but, I just remember uh, the first one is the first one's definitely black. I think the yes. middle one's red. I question the, mark about the last one. Yeah, the middle one is red, and I'm I'm curious what what Greg thinks. My my memory is it's the only time I felt like it was a jump scare because it like cut to the red and the music mm-hmm. came in really loud, and mm-hmm. I was like very startled because it it had been this very sort of deliberate pace and you know horrifying and 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 you know just eating away at you, but like there was not a lot of quick movements or anything, and this was a drastic shift. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't, I, I recall sort of once I sort of settled from it being like, I don't know if I like, I don't know if I like this. And I also, uh, in the moment, I also didn't know if I liked the infrared, uh, vision stuff, which is on our list and is, has been referenced. Uh, so I, I, I don't remember like coming to a real conclusion as to why the red screen is there or, or, you know, what happens right before and right after. So I'm going to set up Greg to see if he has an answer to that question. I don't know if he does. Well, I I mean I do agree with the thought that um well and I and I did already say my thoughts on the opening one, but the the opening one is also disorienting in a very productive mm-hmm. way, right? The way I was sitting there and it wasn't a totally full figure theater, but there was a a gentleman like two seats behind me who man gave the loudest harumphs as each trailer started uh, past the second one. Like, harumph! Like, what are they expecting us to do? And I'm like, sit here and wait through the trailers. This is AMC, my friend. Like, it's 25 minutes every time, no matter what. Uh, so, uh, so kind of, I felt that disorientation. I needed to like leave this gentleman behind and it's gonna sound cliche and cheesy, but like essentially leave my corporeal self behind and just give myself over to this film that yeah i was tired and i uh, you know probably shouldn't have eaten a giant plate of chicken fingers before running across the common to get there and it's like i needed that disorientation to like really settle in to the experience i was about to have the the later ones, um, I and and I would lump the infrared in with this. I found them primarily as kind of pressure valves. That anytime I felt like I was getting overwhelmed, there would be this little bit of disorientation to to give me permission to detach from all the emotions I was feeling. And 
Jen, when you were describing kind of the puzzle side of some parts of this movie, I think that also has that effect that you start mm-hmm. to use a different part of your brain and you you get that little bit of release. And as overwhelming as I found all the the film to be, I imagine without kind of those little breaks that it would have been much, much worse. Um, so... Uh, I want to bookmark that I really want to rant for a minute about the sound design in general, but I don't want to derail this point. So do you have no, do you have anything? No, that's sort of why that's sort of what I was setting up. So go for it. So um, I really strongly, strongly recommend if you have not gotten uh, or if you have gotten this deep into the podcast, um, I really want to recommend actually a podcast my wife sent me, um, which is uh, Slate. The online magazine has a, a podcast called Working, which is about kind of experts in fields talk about their jobs. And this is one of the places the sound designer went um, for uh, for his campaigning. Um, he also went on Big Picture. He's He's been around and, and largely gives the same message. But I just want to shout out, if people have not heard one of these interviews, the depth of detail in the sound is incredible. Um, I think all of us would say we left the theater kind of clear on the fact that a lot of the movie was happening in the audio track and the way in which that audio was present and not present at times. But um, I just want to say that the incredible accuracy of the sound design will astound you. And it started by going to every narrative of a survivor or or a victim that they could get their hands on, any narrative of somebody who was at Auschwitz. And they went line by line through the diary and found the sounds that they they said. So the hum of the ovens is as close as they could get to describing what these, these uh, journals said. Down to the level that when we we hear gunshots and a scream or something like that, the sound designer knows the specific event that is and the date it occurred and have mapped it down to that level. So there's wow. there's no reason oh. for that. You can do this and have the same effect without that level of detail. But it was clear they took it as a kind of moral charge to not not exaggerate, not make this, you know, just noise, sorry, literally, uh, but to really try to find dimensions of the experience that weren't being told. And that totally changed my mind about like so much in this film that, you know, Jen, you pointed out before, everything is so intentional here. And it's like, of course they would go to that detail and they would build that. And um, that's why it was on my BAFTA ballot for best sound. It's for me, the Oscar front runner, even if it's not going to be what the, the prognosticators are saying. Um, so I'll stop ranting there, but um, really seek out him in any interview because it's just, it's completely blown me away and, and been one of those things that really stuck with me that like, you know, if he took this job or they, there are multiple, if they took it this seriously, I mean, I didn't even get into it. The guns are the real guns. Like they went to museums and found the the pieces that would be fired and found historical firearms. And it's like, it's not going to just be a gunshot. It's going to be that gun fired mm-hmm. in that way into that place. It's, it's mind blowing. So uh, now I really. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Thanks for sharing. I had no idea about any of that. And I, and now I'm like, their campaign's dropping the ball because like while he's doing all these interviews, 
because I'm basic, I'm like, where is this on my Instagram feed? You know, because there are so <sighs> many behind the scenes and like maybe that would be bad and we don't want that. So, you know, what I mean, like, like I, I kind of get why maybe, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, all the other Best Picture nominees have their makeup artists, their costumes, like all of the craftspeople are out there having behind the scenes reels on the Internet. Like, I don't I've, uh, maybe I've seen the creator visual effects reel like 20 times. I'll watch it 20 more. Right. But yeah, it's everywhere all of a sudden. Whereas yeah, right. you're not seeing that in the same way. Um, all right. I think we are ready because I'm looking ahead to rhetorical situation. And I'm seeing we can continue our discussion of the sound because that I like, I was sort of waiting for us to get to this because like to me, this is the big thing with the movie. I feel like those pressure valve breaks that that you know as you described then greg are to make sure you know if you wrote off what's the sound soundscape as just being in the background no we're gonna make you sit with it so you can realize if you haven't already to realize what those sounds actually are you know what i mean and i feel like um a lot of critics that i've listened to have had said that that's that those were the places they were like oh those are the ovens you know what i mean like or like there's a moment of a realization mm. whereas mm-hmm. your brain sometimes maybe is just like oh that's just background noise like right like the the if there's no if they pull away the visual and the image then it's much easier to realize what all those sounds are um but anyway so i think yeah we're gonna go into a rhetorical situation a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experience So in the teaching of writing, rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. We like doing this segment because all four of us who are regular co-hosts on the show are academics, are writing teachers in some capacity. And so we always like to have a space to deliberately sort of make connections between these two worlds that we occupy. Who wants to start? We have a lot of juicy stuff in here. PT, I just ranted. You, you did, you did, but it was such a good rant that I I, I want to give you like full credit for it. I guess this is what I'm I'm interested in because we're so positive on this. There are a bunch of negative perceptions of this movie, you know, from uh, you know not just from people who were like I can't engage with it or I found it boring or whatever, but there there are folks who just sort of saw it as like yeah I get it like okay. Uh, and you know, I'm thinking particularly Richard Brody in the New Yorker, Mahola <laughs> Dargis in uh, the New York Times, were both sort of like, "This is cheesy." Like, this is, I think, hollow kitsch uh, is the the phrase that Richard Brody used. That was just sort of like, "Eh," like you know, it, it it's it's playing off of what we know. Like the the fact that it's always on the margins is almost like a bit to sort of be like, haha, like we're going to, we're going to keep you from like actually looking at this. Um, but it's ultimately the sort of, you know, the, the mundanity of it isn't horrifying. It's just kind of boring and, and is kind of like, yeah, yeah, no, like what we know, like the people who ran the concentration camps were terrible and I guess their families were terrible too. Like again, maybe like 10 minutes is all I needed. A short film would have been fine. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, like, you know, is, like, we don't feel that way. Like, I go, what do we say? What do we say in, in response to that? Is that just, yeah, I guess this didn't resonate with you. And, it, you know, I, I don't think it's an unfair reading. I, I do feel like it's, it's you know, I, I guess I don't know what the disconnect is of why it was so impactful for all three of us. But there are 
very smart, very, you know, non, non-evil people who are just sort of like, oh, like, no, this was whatever. I, I wasn't into this. So there's there's two slightly different things kind of embedded in this. I think one is this is not a narrative feature in the traditional sense. I think mm-hmm. that's part of it is that and I, I don't think this this ad, for all the things we've just talked about that this movie has accomplished and evoked. I don't think that happens if it is one, if it is shot and cut in a in the manner of a traditional feature film with like shot reverse shots and stuff like you know, what I, mean? I, I just don't think it works as well in that way. And or the screenplay, if the screenplay is like, you know, we're really rooting for Hedwig and Rudolph to get back to, to get back on track and the, the, get their marriage back on track. You know, like if, it, if there's some something like that, I feel like it just brings that it, it like totally undermines everything this film is trying to do. So I, like so I think I and I get that if you are wanting it to be a more narrative and tr- film and to have more of a traditional character development story arc, stuff like that. I get craving that and missing that, but just go watch other movies. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think I think what this film intellectually is trying to do is so special that I'm willing to overlook any any sort of like you know what I mean any any quote unquote shortcomings that it has on that front in terms of not mapping onto traditional Hollywood cinema. Like, um, so I think there's that, and then the other thing which is slightly different, I think, is the idea that you mentioned, where it's like, why why is this not a short film why does it i heard this from lots of critics that didn't care for it where they were like why why are we just repeating the same idea over and over again the counter argument i heard a lot of other critics say when they kind of like entertain this criticism was that every time it is repeated there's a slightly different angle on it but even if you don't think that i feel like part of the point is the repetition that it's everyday life and that for these particular people this is just how they were living, you know what I mean? And like, and, the, and they, they saw value in that and, and it wasn't a, an extraordinary event to them. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and so, so I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like the, the themes and what this film is trying to achieve can easily explain away any of these criticisms, whether or not that means you shouldn't have those criticisms. I don't, I'm not saying that, that, but like, you know, to me, that's why it works, because there's clearly a purpose behind the, these choices. It really makes me think about the movie I was afraid this would be. And I know you just mentioned these smart critics who did definitely watch the movie, but it's like I was afraid that, you know, um, I, I'm actually this is so dumb. I'm thinking of Amy March uh, in uh, Gerwig's Little Women when she says writing about something confers importance. Right. Uh, Amy Demption. uh 2021 <laughs> i forget when that movie came out uh but i think there was a fear that focusing on this family at auschwitz would glorify them just in purely in the act of focusing would elevate them and redeem them in some way and i think the film is at great great pains and we've we've been over the the litany of evidence that this is not glorifying them and yet as I alluded to at one point, like the way we are used to consuming film, our sympathies go to them. And that's where the real work of this film is happening is in that gap between where we think our, our affections are and where they should be. And that is, is really kind of upsetting in a positive way. Right. And so um, I don't, 
having seen the film and how it really avoids that, I don't understand these critics that that are saying that. Now, um, the the criticism Jen brings up about like, yeah, you could have gotten this in 10 minutes. Got, guys, I'm telling you, the live action shorts this year are brutal. They make a very strong political point many times in like 20 minutes, but they feel just that much more superfluous. And I respect this mm-hmm. film for being like, no, you sit in this and you feel this and you don't get just 10 minutes. You don't get a YouTube or a TikTok. You have to actually sit in this and these feelings and work to unpack them. And that is such a, a powerful, um, you know, part of this experience to me. So um, I will shift that into one of our other topics here, which is thinking about like, why now? Why is this film coming out in 2024? And what does it have to, to say to now? Because so much of the rhetorical situation as we teach it, you know, um, we, we, uh, we often in rhetoric and composition boil this down to intent and impact, right? That those, there's often a, a gap there. You control the context in which you create a piece of writing. You don't control the context in which it's received. Um, in this particular case, there's some world events that complicate some feelings for some people. And I think a lot of people have struggled with how that should or should not impact uh, your interpretation of, of this film or, or this, this part of history. But I, I will just kick it off before throwing it over to PT and say that I feel like this is much more concerned with the rise of fascism today than any critics seem who dismiss it seem to to really understand and you know i think that is probably to me the reason it deserves its best picture nomination despite all the things we're we're talking about jonathan glazer has said that's why he made this film mm-hmm. okay is to specifically use this history to comment on our present problems in the rise of fascism and how easy it is for that to happen again Because by exposing that they're just really going about their everyday lives, no big deal, right? Like to be like, look how easy it is for them, right? Um, And therefore easy for other people who may or may may not be facilitating that today. They are. They are facilitating it. But uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I I think that the people who, you know, not to belabor about the the critics who didn't like the movie, but it feels like the people who have uh, uh, well thought out strong opinions of like, didn't rate this movie particularly highly it's either a combination of i have been thinking about the rise of fascism for you know as long as jonathan glazer has been trying to make this movie which is a decade he was reading you know a draft of the book before the book was published in 2014 so or at least he was aware of it and was talking to martin amos about it uh so you know he took a decade working on it and some of the people are like yeah i've been thinking about it all that time too like i don't need this which i think is a little cognitive a bit of cognitive egocentricity of like well guess what a whole lot of other people do so you know maybe it's not a bad thing that this is a prominent movie that's going to maybe get people to think about oh how much am i letting myself just sort of get fixated on what i'm doing in my life and letting things unfold around me um that are are bad or even like you know, allowing it to happen, like, you know, making active choices that are perpetuating uh, a shift in in this direction. Uh, or there's people who kind of feel like this is a such a important for lots of different reasons and, and all the sort of factors around it. 
the the Holocaust is a particular and unique thing that setting it up as this is a parallel to the rise of things that are happening now is insulting to the victims of like what mm. was happening then. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I don't feel like I saw that ever explicitly stated, but that felt like the, the people who were like, you know, complaining about this movie and complaining is, seems like a loaded word, but critiquing this movie um, for uh, in, in a similar way that people were critiquing Oppenheimer of you're not showing the victims, like you're just showing these people who are setting it up and that is removing sort of the reality of it. Now, I think, again, like in thinking of a wider context, there's no shortage of movies, like like you were saying earlier, there's no shortage of movies you could go and watch if you want to look at victims of the Holocaust. That's why this is a unique and interesting story of just looking at that house on the outskirts. That's the, it's the thing that's usually in the background of the Auschwitz scenes is the foreground and Auschwitz itself is the background. So, uh, so yeah, I, you know, I think that that is, uh, you know, I would, I think that that's both important. And I do think it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's why it feels so, I, I think why it feels so bad for people to watch it now is the ways in which it's just kind of like, yeah, like I can, you know, I, I could see someone doing something like this, you know, again, not like in, I think very few people would think like, yes, that would be great. I would love to have that house in, and do that job. But there are things that are, you know, not that far removed from it that people are not that far away from that, you know, it's like, oh, if I just, but if I got that promotion, like, wouldn't that be great? Um, and not thinking about the, the, collateral damage i guess of of the lives that we're living in the society we're building greg you had a really good note in here about foreground and background do you want to jump in and talk about it i do jen uh so uh one of the things i studied um sorry i didn't have an oompa loompa rhyme ready to go um so (laughs) Um, one of the things that uh, I studied a bit in grad school um, is become a, a popular kind of metaphor is um, the idea of the palimpsest. And I, I'm going to do my best to explain this, even though I have always felt like I barely understood it. But um, the, the literal palimpsest is the fact that for centuries, in order to create paper, they would take old paper that was discarded and essentially mash it up and and steam it and dye it and put it together. And so scholars of literature and rhetoric um, will often be able to see in a text that has been preserved the shadows or the fragments of a text that was purposefully not preserved. And this has become a metaphor for how um, in, you know, in literature and rhetoric, how um, there is kind of the version of things that is meant to be presented and then the version that still comes through. And we uh, in grad school, Jen, I don't even know if you heard this paper, but uh, we had a colleague uh, named Danielle uh, who wrote a brilliant, brilliant paper that was specific specifically about um, the ship logs that the captains would keep aboard slaver ships and how that log was purely about commerce. And that's the whole idea. The kind of brutality of slavery is the fact that it was all just about numbers and economies, right? And so those captains would keep that but they would sometimes write down about how there was a great bellowing under the decks or that the 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 uh, slaves got rowdy once there was a song. And there's a way in which 
those people have been lost to history, but their voice carries through as a palimpsest, right? That we wanted to ignore the humanity of those people and and their voices did come through. And we know they sang songs below the decks and we know they shouted out and so on. And I thought of that so much in this movie because what we are presented with in the foreground is the systematic way in which all of this was supposed to be silenced. It was all going to be the master narrative of the master race is going to be the new history. And the control of language, the control of, of identity, all of that is folded into the, the violence of the, the genocide. And so I thought in all the previous rant I gave about the sound, the sound was exactly reenacting that same thing. It was, you maybe are trying to control this. And this is you, you in that sense is I think the characters and in some ways the filmmakers, right? Like this is supposed to be a narrative that is constructed in a particular way, but it's, it's not right. And, and you both have spoken really well about the mother character and the mother character is exactly that, right? She's affected by the palimpsest. She sees the narrative that is being suppressed and that fragment comes through and affects her. And she's, you know, essentially the most moral character I think we have presented in the, in the film in, in many ways. That that might be going too far. Uh, So I, well, everything's relative. Yeah. (laughs) True. True. So relative, to the other characters, certainly the most moral of the family. Like, yes. I mean, I, I don't want to speak to the other, the but other. The, people, but but yes. the the comment that PT brought up earlier, where she talks about, oh, I wonder if the woman I used, whose house I used to clean is on that on the other side. Mm. That indicates that she, maybe this is not even a moral repu- repulsion. You know what I mean? Again, this is goes back to the end scene with the commandant dry heaving. It's like it's purely a physical one, in which mm. is sort of like the palimpsest for. The, the the mental one if that makes sense you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the they're all fine with this <laughs> it's the abstract um, versus the concrete where it's just sort of mm-hmm. like yeah yeah like oh we have to we have to conquer the west in america and but it's like no one's thinking about like and here are the people that are dead because of that and like looking at like the people you know being murdered or piled up uh somewhere or you know put into a reservation um you know and actually looking at that is like oh no i don't like that like i like conquering the west but i don't like the actual work of it i don't like the the outcome mm. i certainly don't want to see it like i i don't think that the character of the grandmother left to then try to agitate for this to stop she just left to not have to look at it anymore mm, that's a really good that's a really good point um so i'll, I'll yes, close my rant it. my rant part two by just saying <laughs> i think the museum folds into this really well and, and i think we've covered that ground so i won't repeat it but then you think about the museum as yet another narrative trying to pull the story of the victims the fragments out and all we're left with is the shoes and the suitcases and the boxcar the the physical objects that are what remains after afterwards and when we've problematized those scenes tonight by adding in the cleaners, that becomes almost another version of that, that when we tell the story of the museum, we actually lose the story of the labor that keeps the museum welcoming guests. The people doing the actual work of keeping this presentation, you know, in a form we can all see are erased and they all shuffle out before the gates open and I think that is another reminder of uh, whose stories, 
who gets to be a part of the story that gets controlled and gets shared. So um, it's a really fun kind of cocktail party academic term. I encourage people to just rip off anything I've said out loud and, uh, you know, use it at your cocktail party. But it, it's a helpful way to think again about about the ways in which history is constructed. And I think it, it, we could have had the same con conversation at Killers of the Flower Moon too, really. For sure. And I think the last thing I'll add on to that, because it's really making, driving home this, this point that I already had in our notes, was that Marx very famously defines history as the means of production. And I feel like this, there's so many in this, so many moments in this film that reminded me of that. A bunch Greg just talked about. Um, but the one scene we haven't really mentioned that kind of fits into the, everything we're saying here is the, the board, like kind of the boardroom meeting where mm -hmm. Rudolph is like reporting to everyone else in his new position. And so much of that discussion is sort of like the ship logs, like of like, like, Oh, we're just trying to ramp up production. Uh, the, the crematorium is basically just a, a way to increase efficiency and um, because they, they, the really horrifying thing at the beginning of the film when they're being shown the blueprints and like it basically being pitched on this particular model of a crematorium mm. is the guy says and it never has to stop like it's like it keeps the it keeps rotating like the I don't there's something yep. about the engineering of it where it's like it just keeps it's like a revolving like a mm -hmm. like a sushi conveyor belt like it just keeps going <laughs> it's a terrible it's a terrible comparison um, uh, but and so much of that discussion is purely about here's just how we economize all of this stuff. And, and so, and, and with Rudolph as a character, he's really only thinking about, and, and his conversation where they decide he's going to move, but the rest of the family won't is Hedwig sort of calls him out and says like, this is what you've been working for is for us to have this kind of life. Right. Like, uh, and so everything that he's doing with Auschwitz is purely to help his family get ahead. And the conversation with the the mother, uh, Hedwig's mother, reinforces that where she's like, you've really done well for yourself. Like, um, And it's like the fact that she's saying that so sincerely is insane. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, uh, but that's what it comes down to is that this is so easy to happen because everyone's so fo focused on their capitalist gains, right? And they're not thinking about the larger context in which that's what the, what that's contributing to, essentially, right? Um, but yeah, it's all their own benefits and not the costs in, incurred exactly. by anyone else. Yeah. Yes. Well said. Um, all right. So I do want us to get to quick Oscars watch. We are. Do we? Do we will have a full. Oscar predictions episode coming up fairly soon in two parts uh, because it's impossible to cover it even in one of our extra long episodes. Um, so we don't have to dwell on this a, a ton because I'm sure we'll talk about it again on those episodes. But what are we thinking in terms of, well, I guess a, oh, it's, 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 it's a fraught relationship with this music every time. Um, <laughs> it's never going to get old. Uh, so Oscars, why? Yeah, just because I don't have a tagline prepared. I'm just like, let's just start talking about the Oscars. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is Oscars watch in this case in which we speculate about what zone of interest can win. Again, seems really weirdly inappropriate to be playing. I think Mox would approve of that. They're going to be like, great. That's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's true. Okay, so... 
Zone of Interest is nominated for five categories. Best Picture, Best Director. This just really keeps going. <laughs> it's like the fans a full track almost. It's like those Best Picture nominees. It just keeps going. Just keep oh. going. <laughs> uh, so, so the Zone of Interest is nominated for Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, International Feature, and Sound. Which of these is it winning? I mean, it's the front runner for international feature. And I yeah. feel like the BAFTA momentum, is that a term? Uh, it will it is now. Will push it, push it to, you know, even closer to uh, having having that locked up. I feel like the movie that would have been the biggest uh, competitor for it uh, would, oh, I guess, you know, Society of the Snow is, is up there. That's right. Um, so maybe Society of the Snow, just because I feel like that, had a moment, but I think that moment passed. Uh, perfect days, maybe, like because that's that just came out. Um, but I think that's pretty easily locked up. And I'm I'm with BAFTA and I'm with Greg. Um, uh, give me a button for I'm with Greg. Um, but I'm I, I think this this deserves sound. Uh, you know, I, the presumption has been that's an, that's one of those Oppenheimer ones. Uh, I think we may have said that earlier in the BAFTA discussion, but. Uh, yeah, it would be great. I think it would be really like worthwhile, not just because of all the work um, and accuracy that I also had not heard about, but it's great to hear. And I'm going to s- want to seek out some of those interviews. Um, but just like how 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 important it is for the impact of the movie and how it um, you know it doesn't just sort of say like there's bad things happening nearby, but like just generates the unease and, and really, you know, even the scenes that are away, there's a few, very few, but when they're, when he, when Rudolph is transferred and I forget where exactly what's the city he goes to, but um, when he's off in the city and he's not, you know, by, by the camp itself, um, you know, there's still so many interesting choices and moments in the sound design. I hope it wins. How about you? Uh, I'm all in on sound. Uh, I will print the buttons, but uh, I, I think, I think there's real hope for it because I think about sound engineers who understand the level of work and that's no disrespect to Oppenheimer, but in Oppenheimer, it feels like that's a, everything is great about your movie, including the sound award. Whereas this would be a sound is really important here. Um, I'm just going to be completely honest. I completely forgot anatomy of a fall was blanked by France. So when PT started talking, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, of course it's going to lose to anatomy of a fall. And then I was like, Oh, of course. So, um, I uh, get to uh, just tug on my collar and brag that I have now watched all of these uh, international features, and it is a very strong category this year. Mm. Uh, I just want to recommend that if if people don't dig into these, um, it's it's a tough category. Um, I would even myself put society of the snow kind of lower. Cause I think the other ones are really, really powerful. Io Capitano is uh, like Lawrence of Arabia uh, style film uh, creation and narrative. It's like unbelievably big and special. It's crazy that it's Italian. Cause I think the film is all in French and set all in Tunisia it, or maybe it's Algeria. Uh, Algeria. Anyway, it's it's like not at all Italian. Like, don't go in being like, can't wait to see some pasta or whatever. Uh, it's not going to get there. Uh, and I will say that 
personally, Teacher's Lounge is the most unsettling film I've seen in a very long time. Um, very much uh, different than Zone of Interest, but but also there. So um, all that is just me rambling and bragging about movies I've seen. I hope this wins Best International Feature, and I'm glad to hear PT say it's the front runner since Anatomy of the Fall isn't here. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much with you. I think to me, if I'm thinking about this from my like Oscars puzzle perspective, typically if there's an international feature nominee that's also in Best Picture, that's the go to winner. Uh, it's kind of happened every time in the past five to ten years. And and, and the fact that it, that international features are getting nominated, get nominated at all in Best Picture, that's a relatively new thing. So, it, and that it, they've typically kind of gone hand in hand, right? Um, so that one I'm pretty confident in. There was a time where I thought adapted screenplay could be a spoiler category be just because of the Martin Amos novel. But here's the thing. Everyone's kind of saying that this film is much more notable as a directorial achievement, but Christopher Nolan has that locked up. So it's not winning there either. But that that it's like not really people aren't going to really be thinking about the screenplay necessarily. They're going to be thinking about the directing. So and the sound and, and like all the things we've been talking about this whole episode. So sound, I think, is the only place where it's probably going to be one of those things where everyone like 80 percent of people are predicting Oppenheimer. But then the few people who are like, I'm going to I'm going to bet on like a weird upset here are going to are going to go with this for sound. Um, and I, yeah, I think if we yeah, in like. At first, I was like, oh, from a spreading the wealth perspective, this it winning in sound makes a lot of sense. But if it's already winning international feature, there's less of a case, I think, to be made for that. So it, I do feel like it will be sort of if it does happen it will in sound, it will be a spoiler. It is just the sound people who vote for the sound award, right? That's one of those. I, I mean, at, for the nominations, for yep. sure. OK, so it I might be everybody. Everyone voted. voted for everything now. Am I wrong about this? It's the your area of like, expertise more than mine. So no, you're so, right. Yeah. Well, I think for nom, I think it's for nominations that is true. The exception that is animation now, which is more of a free for all. During during the finals, but, all Oscar categories are on the ballot for voting members. Yeah. So I think everyone. Okay. So every okay. it's it's um yeah the 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 people who work in sound not choose the nominees and then everyone votes for everything, which is partly why you get those crazy. The people who get interviewed anonymously who are like, I didn't watch this movie more than five minutes. <laughs> like they you could they could have be asked about their vote for sound. I don't think the Hollywood reporter thinks anyone but us sickos really care about it. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that, you know, everyone can vote for it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, I don't know. It to me feels possible. Um, I think it's it, it's less it's possible that that zone of interest could win sound just because. I, I think the movie is impressive. I think that more people are have been seeing it and might be like, yes, I want to give it even more. You know, I want it to win two Oscars instead of one. Uh, and this is a, a, a place where it makes sense to vote for it. I think it almost kind of depends on, you know, how exactly how strong is Oppenheimer? Is Oppenheimer such a big deal that it's just going to gallop through all the technical awards and, you know, push Barbie out of the way, push poor things. And in this category, push zone of interest. Um, if, if there's any, I don't, I don't want to say weakness, but if there's any sort of like, eh, maybe Oppenheimer has enough, this does feel like a place where something else could get in. And it, I think it would be zone of interest. Counterpoint is sound and editing historically go hand in hand, especially when they're being won by the best picture winner. 
So Fair. if Oppenheimer's taking it and having a big night, it's like not a question of whether, but how about how much? I feel like yeah, the sound right. probably gets swept up with editing because editing seems pretty locked for that for Oppenheimer right now. I would yeah. say, but yeah. And, and I think that you're you're right that there it never really had any momentum in adapted screenplay, but. I just want to say I wish it did. Like, mm. all, all due respect, I'm happy American fiction It looks to be on a path to win an award. Uh, or that Barbie looks on a path to get a, an Oscar to Greta and, and Noah Baumbach. But I would also, I, I do feel like the fact that it, it, by all accounts, is very, it's only taking one little, like, sliver of the book and expanding it out. Like, that's, I always think, is one of the best forms of adaptation uh and so uh I, I think that would have been very successful and even though it is so visual and it is so audio that like the 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 structure of it was still needed still needed to be there for it to work so um would have been cool if it was sort of even had a chance a, a puncher's chance uh in the race but uh you know all due respect to the other movies i'm i'm happy if either of them win as well watch zone of interest win pga and then everyone's confused. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I hope it. something like that happens just to throw chaos and make spice things up, so that the long march of Oppenheimer, which I would be to- completely happy if it if it won all the things we think it's going to win, um, but that would, I think that would be really fun because PG, PGA nominating Zone of Interest already threw people into a tizzy where they were like, "This is like the least PGA type movie ever," because PGA tends to be more mainstream, more blockbuster, and then the fact that they included this movie in their ten people were like what is going on so yeah. so who knows we'll see um all right i think that's good and as i said we, we have a lot more oscars talk on the way so i think we can we can end there um greg where can folks find you and all of your great work on the internet uh thanks for letting me come in and talk about just a fantastic movie it was really fun to to be back on and thank you so much uh i let's see i can you can find most of my writing by going to ioncanon.com i also host a weekly podcast about the wheel of time called through the glass columns i am this week returning to my co-hosting duties on rebel base cards bad batch coverage uh which means yes i'm spending more hours in my basement with a microphone than is healthy for any human being uh for the next uh two months um i did just want to shout out uh my letterbox is uh also ion canon e-y-e-o-n-c-a-n-o-n pt and i are doing god's work work trying to make the tag system on letterbox work and we are tagging all our reviews with ltr pod Jen is as well, but she watches something called a like healthy number of movies as opposed to diving through five films every Saturday afternoon. Um, so uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, seek us out there and uh, tag your reviews with LTR pod. And if PT and I can figure out how to search for them uh, on occasion, we'll look for what our uh, listeners are also posting about. I appreciate that Greg is trying to both make the tag happen and, and he took up the mantle of trying to explain the tag and how it works. Cause every time I try to do it, I'm like, there's a tag and you click, but there's a pull down menu and you got to choose everyone. But if you change the view, you got to change it to everyone again. It's a whole, it's a whole mess. So we're also calling on letterbox to improve the tags. Mm. Uh, I know, I know they're listening. <laughs> and PT, where can folks contact us if they have, alternate interpretations of everything that's going on in this film or they just want to let us know that they accepted the challenge to go watch it 
Uh, sure. Well, I mean, they, they can go and find any of our reviews on, on Letterboxd, uh, as previously mentioned, tagged LTR pod. Uh, and uh, they can, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll plug my uh, Letterboxd on there, uh, which is PT McNiff, P-T-M-C-N-I-F-F. So you can go and try to add some comments on my review or, or either Jen or Greg's. You can also, uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, follow us on any of your podcast app feeds. Uh, check out Jen Substack, the longtake.substack.com, uh, or uh, contact us on Instagram or threads at the long take review. And if you don't want to co- talk to us in any sort of a public setting, you can email us the long take review at gmail.com. You can find me at Qui Gon Jen on Letterboxd and at Subchakchai, S O P C H O C K C H A I on Instagram and threads. Thank you both for reinforcing how much I appreciated this movie, but then also helping me understand it better. Thanks for listening. You can follow The Long Take Review on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive new podcast episodes as well as written reviews of films with Oscar buzz and new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.